Hey, amazing listeners. Before we dive into this week's episode, a quick thank you for being here. It means the world. If you haven't already, please hit follow on your platform as it helps others to find the healing that they need. If you're enjoying the content, please rate and review. It helps the show to reach more people. And if you've got any questions about your healing, send them to Mita at metamystery.co.uk. DM at Healing Place Pod on Instagram or leave a comment on Spotify or Apple. I'll answer them in a future episode. Thank you. Hello, I'm Mita Mystery and this is Healing Place, the podcast that explores how we can heal our mind, body, and emotions using science based tools and natural healing methods. Today, I chat with Dr. Rageshri Darewan an NHS consultant in sexual health and HIV medicine, a researcher, internationally known speaker on health equity and author of Unheard, which is out in July. Rageshri also writes for academic journals and her voice reaches the public through BBC Woman's Hour, BBC World and BBC Sounds, amongst others. She is passionate about a better healthcare service for all, one that listens instead of dismisses. In this episode, Rageshri shares her story of being unheard as a patient while going through IVF and the importance of empathy, unpacking biases and breaking sexual health taboos. She also offers insights on advocating for ourselves and caring for our sexual health. Let's meet Rageshri. Thank you so much for joining me on Healing Place today, Ragashri. It's a real honor to have you here. I'm really excited for this conversation and I love what you stand for and all the care that you're putting out there in the world. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's such an honor to be asked on. Thanks so much, Mitha. I really want to dive straight in and ask you, tell us where you grew up and what led you to pursue medicine? So I was born in what was called Bombay at the time um, and my parents were kind of in a phase of moving back and forth between um, England and India. Um, So I was born there and then we moved um, when I was two to Essex. So I grew up in um, in Chelmsford um, and I moved to London to go to university and I've been there ever since. Um, and I do come from a family of medics. There's a lot of medics in my family, not unusual for, for the South <laughs> Asians. Um, and I think it's yeah. my mum is a GP, um, but she was also a specialist in family planning. Um, so she was really into women's health. And I think it was from her that I got really interested in women's health as well. Um, so I went on to specialise in sexual health and HIV, um, which has a lot of women's health in it, but lots of other things as well. Um, so I feel very fortunate to be in a specialty that I'm really passionate passionate about, um, have been in for about 15 years and working in East London. Wow, that's amazing. And I bet your mother is really proud. Yeah, I think she is. <laughs> I will embarrass her by telling her that she's one of my inspirations. Um, and now I, I mainly do HIV, actually. So I'm mainly an HIV doctor, do clinics and uh, ward work most days. Fantastic. And you said you lived in Mumbai. What's your fondest memory of Mumbai? Because I love that place. I love that city. I have lots um, because um, we used to go back every summer and my family had um, like a six storey 
building. Um, so my cousins from all around the world and us would be there in the summer and we would just spend summers there running up and down the stairs, playing cricket in the car park. Um, wow. And it was just really good fun. So many good memories. Oh, I love that. That's one of my fondest memories of Mumbai too, is being around all the cousins. That's really lovely. So you were saying that you practice in East London now. So what kind of patients and cases are you dealing with now on a day-to-day basis? Um, So as I said, I'm I'm mainly an HIV doctor these days. Um, So um, I do inpatient work. So seeing people with um, often quite advanced HIV um, and people in clinics. um, So people often who are very well with HIV. So it's quite a range. Um, And the good news is with HIV these days is that it's very treatable people can live till they're very old and we know that if they're on treatment they can't pass it on to anybody else um so I feel like the range of patients is really great and it's something um that feels quite wonderful about telling someone who's been newly diagnosed with HIV that you know they're going to be fine it's it's a wonderful thing to tell somebody um so East London, it's a very diverse population and that's um, kind of our patients are very diverse as well. And I think over the years, um, you know, I've seen people from a wide range of ethnic groups, migrants, people of different gender, sexuality. Um, and I think we also see some of the most marginalised groups in East London as well. And that has really kind of impacted on my research and my my clinical practice and my advocacy, um, really thinking about who are those people who have got more advanced disease because they've not been able to access healthcare to get a test or to take treatment. Um, so I think it's, you know, they've really inspired me to do um, kind of more research and more work in this. Brilliant. Can you tell us more about your research around that and particularly about the inequalities in healthcare? Because I know you've done a lot of work in that area and you're very passionate about it. What were some of the key findings of that research? Um, So I think one of the earliest pieces of research I did was looking at the issue of intimate partner violence amongst women living with HIV, which has been known kind of globally to be a real driver of HIV infection. Um, So if if a woman has has a violent partner, she's more likely to get HIV um, through kind of coercive, non-consensual sex, but also not being able to decide when to use condoms, for example, or, or when to have sex. Um, so we did a survey of our um, women coming to our clinic and we found that over a half had experienced intimate partner violence in their lifetime, which was um, double kind of the general population. Um, and this led on to kind of um, national guidelines being produced, which suggested that people in clinics should be asking our patients if it's safe to do so about their experiences of violence so they can be referred on um, for, you know, for help with that. Um, so that's kind of one of the main things. And I've done a lot of research around women. Mm-hmm. So also been involved with projects looking at kind of menopause amongst women living with HIV. There was a real knowledge gap there. Um, and I'm also very interested in the kind of the effects um, on issues around access to healthcare for ethnic minority um, communities. Um, so I've done some work which showed um, we did like a, a national study which showed that people who are black and brown living with HIV are more likely to be diagnosed with advanced disease because they haven't been able to access a test, um, less likely to be able to take their medication regularly or stay in care. And this is all again due to you know probable structural barriers in accessing healthcare and maybe poor mm-hmm. healthcare experience. Um, kind of most recently I took some time out to do a master's um, which I was very lucky to do and I um, my my dissertation was kind of looking at sexual health so um, bacterial sexually transmitted infections amongst people who are South Asian in England and again there's just a massive gap on South Asian sexual health um, 
so that was kind of an exploratory project and hope to do more work on that soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is so with South Asians? Is it the shame or the taboo or is it the lack of culturally responsive care? What would you say is going on there? I think all of those things, actually. Um, I think mm-hmm. I think we've got slightly better about talking about mental health in some South Asian communities. Um, I think we're still a way to go with sexual health. Um, we don't talk much about sexuality either um, or sex. So these, you know, I think it is a taboo in some communities. Um, I think we could make our healthcare services better as well. So as you say, kind of more culturally competent, really think about what are the ways in which people can reach us, make us more accessible, um, all those things. Um, so I think there's, I think the other thing is we don't actually know what works well. And I think we need to do that research to really mm-hmm. speak to communities and find out what they want. Um, so I hope, you know, that we see more in this space, but I think people are already doing some great work already. Um, and I know there's some really great podcasts out there, which are already um talking about South Asian sexual health and other taboos. That's great. You mentioned uh, structural inequalities. And I remember just going back to COVID, we did some work together and we we were working with some doctors in the USA. Do you remember that? And back then, during COVID time, it, it became very apparent that people from Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities were disproportionately affected by COVID. And also the first nine doctors to die in the UK from COVID were from the Black, Asian and minority ethnic community. So back then, the structural inequality conversation was happening. What's changed since then, if anything has at all? Yeah, I think um, the conversation at the start was where people were wondering about whether it was a biological difference or a genetic difference. And I think we found out very soon that that's not the case. We know that um, uh, race or ethnicity, it's a social category, it's not a genetic category. And actually, it wasn't that people were inherently more likely to die from COVID. It was because it was often black and brown doctors who were more likely to be exposed, so more likely to be in the front line, more like less likely to have adequate mm. protective equipment. Um, so I think there's been a greater awareness of those inequalities, a greater awareness of racism within the work force racism experienced by patients so structural racism as well as institutional racism um, so I think that has changed and you know we now have the NHS um, race and health observatory which is looking at racial inequalities we've got the workforce um, race equality scheme in the NHS as well looking at workforce issues um, so I think it's hopeful actually I think you know the pandemic really gave a good opportunity to think about these things. But we know that these inequalities were going on for decades beforehand, but at least, you know, it brought them to light. People, more people had heard of them. Yeah, that's so true. And it's really hopeful to hear that there's all these mechanisms in place. And it does give me hope for sure that it's it's going in the right direction. So thank you for sharing that with us. So in terms of being heard, why is being heard so important to you? So I think for several reasons, some are personal and some are related to my job. Um, So I I mentioned that um, over the years, I've worked with some of um, very marginalised populations in East London. Um, And these are people who are often referred as being kind of voiceless, you know, um, they don't have any input into um, policy, services aren't designed for them. And people are often told, you know, that they should speak up. But these are communities, I think, that have been speaking. It's just that no one's been listening to them. So I think it's been that, seeing that in my work, 
seeing day to day the effects of not being heard or prioritised in policy or research and the, you know, the effect that's had on their health, um, which has really driven me. But also um, uh, I've had my own personal experiences of not being heard. Um, so I have endometriosis, which is a very common um, condition right. that affects um, people who menstruate. I think it's one in 10 cis women, for example. Um, so you get very mm-hmm. painful periods, but it can cause kind of more long term issues like chronic pain and scarring, which can cause um, infertility. Um, so quite a long time ago now, I was having um, IVF and um, the IVF hormones basically triggered my endometriosis. They made the pain worse. And in the middle of a cycle, I had excruciating pain, like the worst pain I'd ever had at home. And I was very worried. I had something called ovarian torsion, which is a a known complication of IVF, Mm -hmm. where the ovary gets so big from being stimulated to produce so many eggs, it sometimes twists on its stalk. um, And when it twists, Mm -hmm. it cuts off the blood supply. And that's very painful. And it needs to be surgically operated on. So I was at home in excruciating pain, I'd taken all my painkillers, nothing had worked. Um, And my husband came home and found me on the floor of the bathroom. Um, and took me oh to A and E, um, and A and E were great. They saw I was in loads of pain. They heard what I was worried about, um, and they gave me, you know, very strong painkillers. And they admitted me to the to the gynecology ward. Um, and I was in for a few days, and luckily the scan didn't show I had anything. Yeah, you know, I didn't have the ovarian torsion, so I didn't need to have surgery. They thought it was just a flare up of the endometriosis, but the pain was really awful. And I can remember um, saying to staff on the ward that, you know, um, please, can I have more pain relief? This is not enough for me. These tablets aren't enough. Um, but I was I was ignored. I saw, you know, people rolling their eyes. Oh I was really made to feel like a nuisance wow. and it was awful. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, I was in for several days. I think eventually I did see a doctor in the middle of the night who prescribed me stronger pain relief. And I went home and I thought about it for a long time. And I basically didn't speak about it for a very long time to anybody because I felt really ashamed, I think. I felt really ashamed that it happened to Mm me. Um, And I was a doctor and, you know, perhaps I could have spoken up more. And in fact, it was my partner who spoke up for me. I was very lucky to have him. And I didn't complain either. And I, I really wished I'd complained. And I thought, I just thought, I just don't want to think about this anymore. Um, if I'd complained at the time, they would think I was more of a nuisance. So I just thought, do you know what, if this can happen to me, I am, I know the NHS incredibly well. I'm a doctor. I was a consultant at the time. Um, I can speak English. I have a partner. If this ha- can happen to me, what on earth happens to everybody else who doesn't have that knowledge, who doesn't have that privilege of working in NHS, can't speak English, doesn't have a partner to advocate for them? So that really got me thinking. Um, and I know this is an experience that happens to so many patients. You know, it happened to me as well. Um, and I eventually wrote about it a few years ago. I got the opportunity to write about it in, in The Lancet. And I got, you know, some really great feedback from that and people saying it happened to them as well. And I was um, told about this concept from philosophy, um, which really helped me understand my Mm -hmm. experience. Um, And it's a concept called epistemic injustice, which basically means it's an injustice related to knowledge. So the creation of knowledge and passing it on. And a specific type is called testimonial injustice, um, which is when you say something 
but the person who listens to you doesn't hear what you say they don't hear what you say as being serious they don't believe you and that's because they have some prejudice about your social identity so for example it could be because you're a woman of color you're less likely to be seen as being credible um, so what you say may not be believed so we know for example um, people of color are more likely to experience this women people um, who are gender diverse people due to their class so if you're working class and have an accent that is working class you may be less likely to be taken mm-hmm. seriously people due to being very old or very young um, and this happens in healthcare it happens in, in in any scenario it can happen in the workplace as well um, but in healthcare it's really important because obviously if you're not heard or believed if people don't take you seriously then you're not going to get the tests you need the treatment you need and I think when we look at kind of patient safety reports so particularly I think we we hear a lot mm-hmm. in the news about mat- maternal mortality reports so women who have died yeah due to pregnancy and in many of the investigations you will hear you know them or their relatives if, if, if they haven't died obviously if, if they've um, if they've had a, a a bad outcome but didn't die you'll hear that they say they, they complained to the team many times about their pain they felt something was wrong but again they were told it was normal um so this thing about not being heard, not being believed or taken seriously can have really, really huge impacts on people's health. Um, you know, people will die because they're not heard. And I think to, to some degree it can happen to any patient, um, but I think it is more likely to happen to people who are minoritised. So women, um, women of colour, as I said, all those kind of categories. Yeah. So for me, I think I was really inspired by this to do more writing um, and I, I've written a book. <laughs> Um, which is called Unheard, Brilliant. Um, which really explores, yeah. you know, how people go unheard and how it leads to their silencing. So like me, not talking about it. Mm. And that powerlessness that you must have felt as a patient, because in a way, well, the doctor is in the position of authority and a position of power. So how did you feel going through that experience? Did you feel powerless and neglected? What was going on? How did you feel? Yeah, I think I felt all of those things. Um and that's the thing, isn't it? When you're unwell, you're at you're absolutely most vulnerable. And that is exactly yeah. when you need the care. Um, so yeah, and mm. I did feel neglected. I felt I felt all of that. Mm. And this thing that you're saying about listening, to me as a therapist, I have to listen to my patients fully to be able to empathize with them. So empathy is the basis of a therapeutic relationship between a patient and a, a doctor. So if they're not listening, is that because they don't have time or because of their prejudices? How can you give that patient the care that they deserve? So I've, I, I talk about this a lot in the book. Um, I did I had put I did a lot of research to really think about what makes it hard for doctors to listen. I think to kind of reassure people who are listening, I think doctors do want to listen well. I think you know it's something. It's one of the reasons we go into medicine, and actually we. If we have the time and the ability and the capability, I think listening is a really important part of our job. It makes it more enjoyable. And, you know, having like a doctor-patient relationship, knowing someone for a long time particularly, really, really makes it for us and it improves um, people's health as well. Um, I think, as you say, there's lots of structural issues that make it hard. So not having time, not being in an environment where listening is conducive. So you may not, you know, be in an area which is quiet. You may not have the privacy. Um, and actually, I think we're not in, 
incentivized to listen. So, um, you know, when they look at kind of productivity, they look at how many tests done, how many diagnoses made, how many treatments given, but not did you listen well to a patient? Um, yeah. And I think there's something there about um, our role as doctors, which perhaps we are don't think about so much. Um, so again, when we're medical students, we're taught to diagnose and treat. So to like to fix a patient. Um, and But often we can't fix patients because there are conditions that, you know, that we don't know why a patient has symptoms or there are things that are very hard to fix, like chronic pain, for example. And perhaps we don't think that um, just by listening, that that in itself has therapeutic value. Um, and that in itself, you know, just witnessing someone suffering, validating them, saying, I hear you, um, is in itself therapeutic. Um, so I think actually that's our role as well. Yeah. And we're not incentivized to think it is. I think I think there is bias as well, <laughs> just to say. Yeah. <laughs> what sort of bias? Well, the, the prejudice and what you were saying before. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, we are part of society and everyone in society has some form of bias. But I think in healthcare, we need to think about how of we course. can, you know, use kind of solutions to mean that bias is taken away there are there policies we can put in which means we do kind of the same thing to everyone um and an example i use in the book is around opt-out hiv testing which we do in um some accident emergency department so we offer everyone who's had a blood test an hiv test um, and that's picked up loads of new cases because we're not thinking does this person have hiv we're, we're offering it to everyone so taking out that bias so the other thing I, I thought about with the not listening is actually also I think we kind of taught in medical school to be quite sceptical of what patients tell us because um, we have to be kind of this objective observer um, and we hear their testimony and we have to take from that what we believe and what we think is important for making a diagnosis. And I think, you know, that's even reflected in some of the language that we use in medicine. Um, so we talk about a patient denied having this symptom. We talk about whether they're compliant with their medication. And I think that kind of puts um, this kind of barrier between us and patients. And, you know, that's not to say that barriers are a bad thing. Um, as I'm sure you know, obviously, boundaries are really important. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's part of our professional obligation. And because of the power and balance but I think we need to think about when boundaries can go too far sometimes and I think that's something everyone needs to decide for themselves when they when they go into the profession. Absolutely and I think it's really important what you just said about language some of the language that is used in medical healthcare is quite blaming it makes the patient feel like it's their fault it's like what is wrong with you rather than what has happened to you it very much does feel like that so I think even some of the terms when you're expecting a baby, you know, if you're over a certain age, you're a geriatric mother. It's not very kind language. And I think that can also be disempowering for people. And I think in a way, it takes away that trust as well, doesn't it, from the patient and practitioner relationship? What's your view on that? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I think there's a lot of victim blaming and I think part of this thing of not being heard is can be like that as well because we're often told to speak up so if you've had a bad experience speak up complain ask for better but we know that there are lots of reasons why people don't speak up because they might be scared about getting worse care you know and we know that some people's complaints are taken more seriously than others again for similar reasons so um, I don't think we can rely on people to speak up I think if we want better safer healthcare, we need to listen better so how do doctors go about doing that? And how do we start to 
remove some of those biases that you've been talking about? What are your recommendations? So I think some of it is thinking about and going back to medical school. Um, So maybe thinking, um, teaching, we do teach communication skills, um, but really getting patients involved in in teaching. So right from the start. So thinking about how we can implement more in the curriculum um, about health inequality. So students understand why is it that some patients have poorer health outcomes or aren't able to go by the healthy lifestyle advice that we give them. So taking away that victim blaming kind of attitude. Um, I think there's something there about bringing in patients into medical school so that um, medical students meet them right from the beginning um, and really getting their input into what doctors are taught. I talk a bit in the book about actually um, I think doctors can be quite proud and always think that we're right and and particularly compared to other um, healthcare professionals. So again, perhaps having some training sessions of nursing students or psychology students or dietitian students, just, you know, so we meet them from the beginning and don't feel that, you know, we are always right and no one can question us. And I think there's also something there I said about the, the role of the doctor as well. So thinking about how we can be best to listeners and also valuing that listening. Um, I think if we can put in any, any kind of, um, policy which makes continuity of care more um, more accessible. So for example, in general practice, there's lots of evidence to say that if you see the same doctor and you get on over years, your health is better um, and it's it's much more efficient than if you always see, you know, a different doctor every time because they you know they know you and you know them. Um, so looking at how we can bring in more continuity of care back into general practice. I think that's really important, Mm. that continuity of care, because I think not just from a patient's point of view, but also from the doctor's point of view, because I've spoken to lots of doctors who've said that they've come into this profession because they care about people, they want to make a difference to their health, their well-being, etc. But a lot of the time, they just see them once and then they don't see them again. So because they get referred on and they don't get that job satisfaction in certain roles. They just don't get that continuity themselves even though they might like it's just the way the system is is that something you would say you've experienced so I think I'm very lucky working in HIV medicine because actually um we have slightly longer appointments than GPs so in this country GPs get 10 minutes with their patient which is not enough um and I get 20 minutes yeah yeah. sometimes half an hour um, and I often we'll see the same patient over years so I've got some patients that I've known for 15 years and that's incredible um I think with GP they, they have like lots of access targets so some patients need to be seen within 48 hours or 24 hours um and I think it makes it really hard then to always see the same doctor um so I think uh probably in terms of again in terms of incentives and how GP performance is measured that needs to be changed by the government so it is more possible for people to see the same doctor that's great so in your book that's coming out soon I'm really excited to read it can you tell us more about it what is it called and what's it about so it's called um, unheard the medical practice of silencing and it looks how people go unheard in healthcare, but also health research um, in different ways and the impact that has on patients. So I kind of start looking off at, um, you know, looking at the doctor patient consultation and really understanding why is it when patients aren't heard or believed? Why does it silence them and what impact does it have on their healthcare? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then I look at why doctors don't listen. Um, and then I kind of go a bit wider. So um, we know that in the, in the healthcare workforce, for example, minoritized doctors often face, you know, experiences of sexism, racism, homophobia, sadly, and all these things have an impact on whether they are retained in the healthcare workforce. Um, and this can really have an impact on patients as well. So we know um, a more diverse workforce is be- leads to better outcomes for patients, particularly minoritized patients. So I look at how minoritized doctors go unheard themselves in healthcare and the impact that has on patients. Um, and also in research as well, um, we know that um, when minoritized researchers um, don't get to do the research that they would like to do, it leads to real gaps in knowledge. Um, and this can happen at like a global mm-hmm. scale. So, for example, researchers in the global ha- in the global south often don't get the funding or the prestige needed um, to carry out their own research with their communities in the global ha- in the global south. And this leads to gaps in knowledge for those communities. So it has you know it has huge impacts um, for global health as well. So. Mm-hmm. I kind of look at all of those things and I suggest um, ways in which we can address it. So it's meant to be a positive book in, the, in terms of we can change things. Good, good. Um, and then I look at um, kind of patients in general and think about how they have been kind of their voices have been discounted over the years as a, as a form of medical evidence. Um, and I use actually um, HIV patients as an example of patients who really had to fight to get heard. Because um, I think without HIV mm-hmm. activists, we wouldn't have medication for HIV and they've really changed how we do science how we do healthcare. Um, so I've interviewed some people um, and then I've kind of looked at the end of how do we listen ethically like how can we do it in a way that's not damaging yeah. um, so kind of yeah try to go from the patient doctor consultation all the way out to global health and and beyond so yeah. Well that is going to be an epic book and a very needed book in this current climate are you hoping it will inform policy and who do you hope it connects with? Such a big question. <laughs> I kind of, well, everyone, obviously. <laughs> I kind of want it to be a book that, 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 you know, patients can take with them, can read and use as a tool. So I've got mm-hmm. some, some, some tips for patients. Although, as I said, the thesis of the book is actually that they should be better heard, not that they speak up. But so I, you know, I want every patient who feels like they haven't been heard to take that book and read it and and use it to advocate for themselves and for others. I would love it to be read by policymakers um, to think about how um, we can make listening more important um, and improve health inequality. And I'd love doctors and researchers and medical students and other healthcare professionals um, to read it and to really think about their own practice um, to prioritise listening and to think about how we can implement it at a more structural and systematic level as well. So I would say everyone. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So what does listening effectively look like to you? So um, I think it's about making sure that the person feels like what they have said has been heard and that that has been believed and they feel validated. Absolutely. And especially for patients, like you said earlier, if you're suffering already and you're in pain and you don't know what's wrong with you, that's not a very nice place to be in. And then you have somebody in a position of power who doesn't listen, doesn't understand. That just makes it a whole lot worse. So yeah, I think there is something very important about being seen, heard and validated and validating people's unique experiences. And I think this is where it ties in a lot with the bias and the prejudice and 
How do you go about getting people to unpick some of that? So I do mention bias. Um, and I think, as I said, it's normal to have bias. We all have bias. And kind of that internal reflection is, is really important. Um, and particularly for healthcare professionals, I think our bias comes out more when we're tired or when we're busy. And I kind of use the example of like an A&E doctor at 3am. You've got lots of patients waiting you are going to um, use your mental shortcuts because they help you be more efficient and quick, but you're more likely to rely on stereotypes, you know, in in those cases. So really thinking, you know, when is it for me that I may be more biased or use stereotypes more? And what can I do about that? But I also really think there needs to be system changes because I think it takes out the individual from, from, from that. Um, So what policies can we put in, which makes patient care safer for everyone? Um, So, for example, there are like um, safety checklists that are used. There are safety bundles. So you kind of um, follow the policy. And that means that you're doing kind of um, making sure that no one goes without um, something. So they're not excluded from getting a a certain check or treatment. Um, An example is the surgical checklist, um, which is used in this country where I think um, I'm not a surgeon, so I I may get something slightly wrong, but essentially they go through a list to make sure that everything has happened before the surgery happens. They go through all the theatre staff, and this means that nothing is missed, even if it feels very obvious. By going through the checklist together, it means that nothing is missed, and that takes out individual bias. So um, although I think individual reflection is really important, I think, you know, systematic solutions are also the way forward. Absolutely, a combination of approaches. And this thing about self-reflection, I know as doctors in any profession, it's encouraging your continued professional development. What sort of activities do you engage in for your, obviously you write a lot. I think I always try to reflect on when I've had what I would term kind of uncomfortable encounters at work so if I have a consultation with a patient or with a colleague I might think you know what what on earth happened there and really kind of reflect and interrogate what I think happened um, and in the book actually I, I one of the chapters starts with a um, with a complaint that I had um, and kind of my reflection after that um, so I, yeah I, I, I think it's often um situations that prompt it but I also think we kind of need regular supervision and I know that's something that happens in psychology and therapy supervision is really important but that's not something that all doctors have and I perhaps you know if there again if there's been like a serious incident has happened the team may reflect together but I think we should be doing this on a more regular basis so having supervision talking about um, memorable uh, consultations or encounters and reflecting on that together as a group in a safe space so I think if we were to implement that um, for everyone to have as a regular thing I think that would really help yeah absolutely so that doesn't happen at the moment for doctors then no it doesn't wow. happen <laughs> I didn't know that I just assumed it did yeah I don't know if it happens in psychiatry actually maybe psych- you know, I think psychiatry it does in psychiatry it, but yeah. certainly not it does right but yeah not in other specialties oh wow I learned something new today with your writing process how did you go about it what kept you inspired to write um so I said I I did a master's I was very lucky to have a year out and um my colleagues I feel very grateful to my colleagues for letting me do that it was kind of after um the second year of COVID so I'd, I'd done some work on the COVID wards and I thought it was time to have a change so I took a year's break from clinical work and did a full-time master's but during that time I'd, I'd kind of done some writing during COVID um 
which had been published. And I just on a whim applied to a, a writer development scheme, um, which was run by the Welcome Collection and Spread the Word Writers Agency. So I kind of applied on the last day and they, they put a call out for you know, people who had a, an idea for a book about health and being human. So I, I applied, I got interviewed, and I was very lucky to get on it. Um, so I had like uh, nine months with them where they gave us a bursary, which was great to support our writing, but also lots of mentorship and workshops. Um, and from that, we were able to develop a book proposal. Um, and at the end of the scheme, we had to read from our book proposal to a whole room full of people from publishing, um, which was actually terrifying. I bet. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, have, I give presentations all the time, but yeah. this is very different. This was very yeah. personal writing. Um, and from that, I very luckily got an, got an agent and, and then got a, a book deal. So, yeah, and this was a scheme that was particularly for minoritised writers. Brilliant. Um, so that was, I feel very lucky to, to have got on it. Yes. Congratulations. And, you know, like I said, your book sounds incredible I can't wait to read it and I think it's going to be so informative for for so many people so if somebody is going through treatment at the moment or is using the healthcare service and or they have done in recent times and have felt unheard what sort of things would you advise them to help them advocate for themselves how can they advocate for themselves so I think there's a few things that people can do when when they've got an appointment coming up with their doctor and some of it is around preparation which can really help because I think if you can it's not always possible obviously but if you can come across more prepared you're probably more likely to be taken seriously so kind of really plan for your consultation have a think beforehand what is it that I want to know from my doctor and write write it down come take it with you I quite like to see it when people have written down what, what they want to ask because yeah. they've really thought about it and I want to make sure that I've answered those questions as well I've really important I do that so um, plan for your consultation write things down beforehand but write them down in the consultation as well um, and I would always ask the doctor for more information so you know can they be signposted to a website or something where they can read read about uh, whatever the condition they want to know more about I think it's quite nice to bring someone with you particularly if you feel like you're not heard so having someone um, who one you trust to be in the consultation you're happy for them to hear what 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 is being discussed and again prepare them so say to them you know by the end of the consultation I really want to know this from the doctor so it's so easy in a consultation if you're the patient to lose your train of thought. Um, so having someone with you who knows what you want to get out of it yeah. can prompt you or they can ask for you. Um, so, yeah, take an advocate. And if, and if you found that you've had, you know, one good experience with a particular doctor, say, in your general practice and ask if you can see the same doctor again. Like, don't feel that you have to be with the same doctor who you're not having good experience with. You can always ask for a second opinion and it's your right to have a second opinion. And it's also your right to complain if you feel things have not gone well and this shouldn't impact on your future care. Um, so, for example, in hospitals, uh, every hospital in England has um, a PAL service where um, they they listen to your complaint and help you with that. So kind of know your rights, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I guess if you can try and find out who's in charge of your care, because there will always be either a consultant or a GP who's in charge. And if, if you feel you're not getting what you need, ask for a second opinion or ask to speak to the person in charge. 
Um, and also let them know if you have any special communication needs as well. So perhaps if English isn't your first language and, you know, although you, you're, you know, you don't, you're worried that you might miss something, then, you know, we should be able to provide interpretation for you. Or if you're hard of hearing or blind, we should be able to help with, with those communication needs. So always ask, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that element of choice is so important in patient care, because if you're feeling powerless already, um, one way of giving people an element of power is by having that choice. If you want to choose doctors, then you should be able to do so. And often patients feel they don't have those rights, do they? So they won't speak up. So yeah, I think that's a really important point that you made. So thank you for sharing that as well. Another question I wanted to ask you about, I know it's not related to your book, but it was going back to sexual health. I know we don't really prioritize that generally. And also within the South Asian community, I know there's a lot more awareness now. What sort of things could we all do just to look after ourselves a little bit better in terms of our sexual health? Is there any tips you have there for us? So I think try and work out what's normal for you, I think is is first of all. And I think I remember when I started doing sexual health, I was really surprised by all the teenagers that we'd see who'd be like, you know, I've got this discharge or I've got this thing and actually it would be completely normal. And part of our job was educating them on what was normal, which kind of says something about perhaps we could be better at doing that education earlier in life (laughs) um, for telling people what's normal about their bodies. Um, But yeah, so one, I guess, is understand what's normal for you and then kind of think about if, if notice if something is unusual um so for example if you're a woman if you're having an unusual discharge if you've got an itch if you've noticed a change to your skin if you're having pain when having sex or bleeding during sex or after sex think about what is not normal for you so keep an eye on yourself I think is really important um and also know kind of where you can get advice from so sexual health services in the UK are free and they're open access. So try and find out where your closest one is. They're confidential. Um, we're generally very lovely people and very happy to see you and very used to talking about embarrassing things. We, we never get embarrassed. Um, <laughs> so, you know, feel free to talk to us. And I'd also really recommend people get regular checkups, actually. So, you know, if you think you go to the, hopefully you go to the dentist regularly to get your teeth checked, get a sexual health checkup. And actually, um, if you don't have any symptoms, you don't actually need to go in and be seen in clinic. So you can order a test online and you can do the test yourself at home. Mm -hmm. So that's important to know is that if you are embarrassed about being examined and lots of people are um often you don't need to be they might just give you a swab or a urine pot or even a fingerprint blood test to do um, that you can do yourself and you can just send that in the post or take it into your clinic and they you know the test will be done for you so I would suggest that you know people get um a a checkup for sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia gonorrhea Mm -hmm. HIV syphilis which can all have no symptoms at all um so I would maybe get that done once a year or if you've got a new partner um think about getting that done as well um and sexual health clinics aren't just about sexually transmitted infections or what's wrong with you. It's also about sexual pleasure. And I think that's something we don't talk about enough is that no. people should be ha- able to enjoy their sex life and have sex that is comfortable and consensual. And we can help with that as well. Often sexual health clinics will have psychologists um, as part of the team. If people are having issues around having sex, um, they can often perf- um, 
provide trauma-informed care. We recognise that people may have experienced sexual trauma before. So, you know, there's lots of things that we are there for. Um, and I would say prioritise your sexual health because sex is a really normal part of being human. And we want everyone to be having kind of healthy, consensual sex lives. So prioritise it as much as you would other parts of your health. Absolutely. That's so true. And we had another guest on previously, Henika Patel, and she is, you know, all about Tantra and embracing your sexuality and feeling the pleasure rather than having it as a taboo. And actually, if we look at things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sex is one of our basic needs. So why we are so squeamish about it is unreal, really, because it's a normal act of life that everybody engages in. And yeah, people do have difficulties and there's no shame in that at all. So seeking help is okay. So what else would you like to share with our listeners? And why should we pick up your book? I mean, I'm very excited to read it. I know I'm going to be reading it, but why should anybody else pick it up? Um, so first of all, I think um, they should pick it up because it's an interesting book. Um, I hope people find it informative and they find it empowering. I think health is a human right. I think we all deserve to be in as good health as we can. And this book is really about improving healthcare for everyone, making it more equitable. And I think we all have to get involved in that. Um, so that's why I would love people to pick up the book. Um, and it's out on July the 4th this year Fantastic. and available to pre-order at the moment from all the usual kind of book websites. Brilliant. And it, like I said, it sounds really brilliant. And also I love the fact that it's got real life stories in it, true stories where you've interviewed patients and that's really powerful because stories often resonate with people. People may still be holding on to something from a past experience and feeling like they're the only person that's been through that. But actually, that reading that story might help them process something and feel less alone. So I can't wait to read it. And I think what you're doing is really incredible and important work. So thank you for all that you do. And what else can we expect from you next? Are you going to be writing more books or are you going to be focusing on your clinical practice? Um, that's a good question. I think I'm excited to see what happens with this book and what comes from that. But also um, I'll be continuing my clinical practice um, and also doing more research. So my current research is how to make HIV care um, better for patients, how we can help people engage in their care. So I'll be continuing that too. Brilliant. And what are you hopeful for for healthcare? I think I want healthcare, particularly in England, to be more prioritised by the government. Um, I would like to see kind of improvements for healthcare staff and enter the strikes. Um, and I would like to see um, more investment put into patient care. Um, so I think I'm hopeful for quite a lot, actually. <laughs> and you're helping towards that with your book, all of these pieces of research that you're doing, it all informs that. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> think so. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. It's been really insightful. Oh, thanks so much for the invite. I really enjoyed it. I loved this conversation with Rageshri. I found her journey inspiring and how using a painful experience can be a powerful catalyst for the greater good. Like Rageshri says, speak up if you feel unheard, get a second opinion. It is your birthright to stand up for yourself and use your voice. I hope some of you found this episode helpful. I'll be back next week with another amazing guest, so please make sure you're back here 
by following the podcast on Spotify or Apple. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share with a friend who might find it helpful. Thank you so much for listening. Keep healing. Take care.